Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang tamang sankang namasami The one day has passed, about this time you took the eight precepts last evening. On this uh, retreat and the advice to just take these first three days as a chance to calm down, settle down, let go of things, because what we what we are aiming at is to develop the reflective mind, the the significance of the Buddhist teachings are in the ability to understand what it is, this this experience of life, consciousness, sensitivity. Because even though we we are uh, human and we have this intelligence and this and the ability to understand uh, reality in a profound way, uh, so much of our life and energy is wasted on on just a, in this kind of negative states, worry, anxiety, just frivolous thoughts, fantasies, a world of uh, artifices. And in order to break through this, we need to reflect on it. Not, uh, we, we aren't trying to convert uh, you to Buddhism or to become anything, to try to, to convince you of a new philosophy or that you should uh, be anything at all, but the whole aim and purpose is to say, awaken your mind to the true nature of things, to your true nature. This is where uh, the Buddhist teachings are so unique in the realm of religious teachings because there are very clear directions, uh, ways of looking, uh, investigating your own experience of life. That's what's so baffling to the Western world is, or, or people that have uh, theistic conditioning, like so many of us were brought up as Christians or Jews uh, or in cultures or c- countries that uh, as- make that assumption, have that as a, a part of their cultural attitude, is a theistic uh, kind of metaphysical belief system, doctrines. And so they, they, they contrast, say, Christianity with Buddhism. Christianity starts with, the, with a metaphysical statement, and which is, uh, I believe in God. So that's, that's the, from the creed of a Christian, which is a statement about, say, an ultimate 
reality. I believe in God as a some kind of uh, that can, of course, God can mean many different things to different people. But as a metaphysical uh, perception, it means the ultimate truth or the reality, uh, deathless reality. But then, the problem with that approach is that that uh, God gets interpreted in all kinds of various ways. And we can see as it becomes an old man up in the sky, it becomes the many people to a child, it's a Santa Claus or it's the kind of deva or deity of sorts. Uh, and so when we when we just uh, say come from metaphysical doctrines, uh, those doctrines oftentimes are not not fully understood or investigated. Uh, and also, the way things are within our own human experience is not fully appreciated or understood. And so, in the, the Buddhist teaching, instead of, instead of uh, a, sta- a theistic and metaphysical approach of, I believe in God, or trying to describe the ultimate nature or, the, or, or define it in terms, definitions, uh, the Buddha established noble truths, the, the Four Noble Truths is his essential teaching, which is around the common human experience of suffering. The First Noble Truth is the truth that there is suffering. Now this is something that all of us experience, isn't it? This is not a metaphysical doctrine, this is a what we call a noble truth. This is where many people become confused. We get here at Amaravati uh, RE teachers, religious edu- education teachers coming here to find out more about Buddhism. And, and many of them say Buddhism is very difficult to understand because uh, to most people in the West, religion is a system of beliefs. You believe in certain things and and you're supposed to adopt a belief and and then your logic comes from the particular belief that you that you have taken on but in the first noble truth is not a belief we don't believe in suffering is that we we suffer part of our human state suffering is is uh, is is a part of every human being's experience from the most privileged uh, form of humanity to the to the most wretched, uh, and from the beginning of time to to the present, all human beings, men or women, uh, whatever race, nationality, class, social position, we all experience suffering as as a common bond, isn't it? Brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. That's in Thailand they say that. They say brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. Which is pointing to to a common bond we all share, isn't it? When we talk in terms of of, uh, 
civilization or ethnic preference or culture or even religious preferences, then then we get into differences like European versus Asian or or Christian versus Buddhist or or uh, the middle class or upper class or working class or we have the difference between men and women uh, or the old generation and the new and the Americans and the and the British and the French and the Germans and goes on and on and then the Africans and so forth there's endless discriminations differences preferences attitudes views and opinions around all these different these different these things that are different but when we contemplate the common bond of brothers sisters in old age sickness and death then then something in us uh, can can has a different reaction isn't it a different response We're not we're not commenting on the quality of, of uh, or or preferences or or prejudices that we might have in regards to race and class and gender and so forth. We're, we're recognizing something that we all share in common, and that we all suffer when we don't understand our lives, ourselves, the world we live in. Then the experience that we have is a sense of fear, anxiety, being overwhelmed. Uh, Life becomes complicated and difficult. In the modern Western world, isn't it, here in Britain, we can make our lives so completely complicated, utterly complicated with duties, responsibilities and worries and fears and and, uh, problems, issues there's no end to the to the things to the complications that we can make around relationships with parents with husband wife with children with with whoever all the moral problems ethical problems or the political problems economic problems just listen to the to the news and you hear the pound and the mark and the dollar and the yen and the lira and all this going up and down and all over the place and people in anguish and despair about the recession and uh, just how how much of our life is just a worry a sense of being caught in a system that is rather overwhelming when you look at yourself in contrast to the universe you're in one feels totally helpless at least I do, when I just seeing myself as a as this kind of creature, this human form in this vast universe, it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's so mysterious, so kind of infinite and vast, and one feels like a, a, a kind of totally helpless, insignificant little critter sitting here. usually we try to make uh, make uh, our lives some place where we can we can feel like at least uh, our life has some significance so we we tend to want to succeed in various uh, maybe worldly professions or you know 
maybe seek some kind of power or fame or recognition or or at least a, a place that a little nest of security a little a little den that we can say uh, this is mine and I feel safe here but when we come outside of the of that which we're used to these little safe uh, niches of life and artificial artifices that we create around ourselves we're faced we're confronted with with the the kind of vastness of a of a mysterious universal system that we can sense that we're conscious of and that we feel all the time so in meditation we are going to this feeling that we have this the sensitivity that we have as a form, as a human form like like this. Just contemplate the, your your own that like right now, each one of you say, is the center of the universe. Not as a kind of megalomania of the mind, but as a practical uh, way of of contemplating your own life, because since you were born you've had to experience life from from this from this form haven't you you've had to this is the center as far practically speaking as far as your life and experience is concerned you're the center because everything comes hits you or impinges on you for your whole lifetime from the time you're born out of your mother's womb to the time your body dies you you are going this thing this sensitive form is going to be touched it's going to be agitated you're going to have impressions feelings impingement uh, ongoing till you die till the body dies and this is a conscious form when when we when we're born then when we're, we then we live our lives as a separate conscious being that's what birth is when you're born out of the your mother's womb umbilical cord is severed then your life is one of a conscious experience in a sense realm because this this realm we live in the planet earth and the kind of bodies that that are born as human beings like these are sensitive forms this is a sensitive form and it means that it's going to feel whatever hits it or impinges on it or touches it in any way so that's just the way it is we're not commenting on whether it should be any other way but th- because we don't know this is what this is what this is what life is for us this is what we experience so just by bringing into your consciousness being aware of it is like like we're seeing the dhamma of this of this experience that we have as being born getting old and appearance experience of pain and sickness and death because these are common experiences to to us all between birth and death then is a is the lifespan consciousness which means that during that span anything can happen anything you think of from the most wonderful pleasant possibilities of 
of excitement, pleasure, comfort, ease, success, praise, the very best, to the most horrendous possibilities of pain and torture and, and uh, illness and disease and humiliation and blame and whatnot, the, the, the extremities of pleasure and pain. We, can, we, we realize that in this lifespan between birth and death, anything is possible, anything you can think of. So that's one reason why we do have a lot of fear yeah, and anxiety about our lives, because there's a lot to be frightened of. As a person, if this is what I am, this body, this is all there is, and this is me, uh, then one, you know, I can think of all kinds of horrible things that could happen to it. Already in, in my lifetime, there's been a certain amount of suffering and disease and pain and humiliation and disappointment, things like this have, have not uh, been uh, something that I haven't already experienced enough of. And then I recognize that the remainder of life within this form, uh, is the uh, ever-present possibilities of pleasures and pains uh, that come with, with, with uh, this experience of sense consciousness. Sensitivity is like this, isn't it? You have sense, sense organs. You have eyes, ears, nose, tongue. The whole body itself is a sense organ. It's a sensitive form. And not only that, because animals have the same sensitivity and consciousness as, as eyes, ears, nose, tongue and body, but being human also means that we have this, uh, this ability to remember. We have language and we have retentive memory. We can create things. We can reflect upon things. The human mind is a mind that, that can contemplate and reflect upon the nature of things. You can contemplate or wonder or ponder the purpose of your life or the meaning of life or existence. You're not just a, a kind of sensitive creature that's just caught in, in a kind of uh, just reacting to things. You do, you can observe your, what pain is. You can observe your own, uh, the feeling of anger or fear or jealousy. You can, you can reflect upon it. You can observe, you can notice and admit that you're feeling this way. So this we call reflective mind. This is a, a Buddha mind, in other words. The Buddha is the, is the knowing, uh, this, this ability to, to know in a profound way, not just uh, knowing about things through acquiring knowledge, but it's this intuitive, insightful knowing through reflection and observing the way things are. So in this human form, they then in Buddhist terms, this is a very fortunate birth to be born as a human being. 
when I first became a monk, I didn't believe in actually. I thought it seemed like a curse to be born in such a sensitive form and uh, to have to to be pu- have to put up with a lifetime of this kind of incessant irritation and agitation of of the of the mind. taken as a personal experience, it's it's frightening. But when we put it in the context of Dhamma, then we we begin to to learn from it. We see that this life as a human being is an opportunity to learn and to understand. It's pain, it's misfortunes, it's tragedies, it's uh, irritations, frustrations, and all they say, the negative side of human experience, we can now regard as opportunities to learn, to open to, to, to investigate, rather than just spending our life trying to avoid all possibilities of pain and misery and whatnot. Which is what we tend to do, isn't it, when we're when we're just caught in the, in reacting to the sensitive state we're in, we just want to get away from anything that is unpleasant, painful, ugly, frightening, unwanted, and uh, hopefully you know try to control the environment and hold on to and try to uh, hoard up or find some kind of security through you're hanging on to what seems more pleasurable or secure or safe or desirable. But we also know that no matter how secure we might feel we are and safe through through being able to control things, have power to control, there's still something that frightens us and worries us. And this, this is a dukkha, or the suffering, that, say, awakens us to Dhamma. Why are we here? Why do we come to a meditation retreat? Saturday night, isn't it? It's time to go out on the town, have a, go to a good restaurant, or go to the theater, or the pub, or some place where there's some excitement going on, some, something that's stimulating, exciting, Entertaining, distracting, absorbing. We're here, what is it, Saturday evening, sitting here with your painful knees. So this means that, to me, it shows that, that there's something in each one of you that has some longing an aspiration to know the truth and understand your own human nature and and the, and the life that you're living. And it, you don't want to, None of us want to to live a meaningless life, do we? We 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 intuit. We have a sense that that there's some some purpose or meaning to it. There should be anyway. Is this a universe that's just some kind of cosmic accident or 
or you know, is there no intelligence in the universe, or is is this just uh, some some? Do we live in a universe that is without any real feelings or love or compassion or anything? Is it just a cold-hearted uh, atomic system that that operates according to cold-hearted mechanical laws and rules? And if it did. You know, if that's the way it is, then why would we feel any? Why would we feel the way we do? If 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 the universe we live in is merely a, a kind of mechanistic system uh, that that goes on, then how what would why how could it produce anything like this? A human being that that has a strong sense of of love, caring, compassion. Uh, a longing to know the truth, an aspiration for divinity and realizing ultimate reality. Where does this come from? Did this come from some kind of crazy mixture of atoms? Some kind of, of uh, kind of absurd cocktail that happened to get born on this earth? Or is this this uh, this human state where we do we feel what we what is it what is why do we why is love such an important experience in human uh, in human life when you hear about when you listen to pop music it's all about most of it's all about love or loss of it unrequited or the loss of the loved or just falling in love or we have a, uh, is this is this just lust a kind of just uh, sexual desires uh, just wanting things or is is there something more to it than just kind of lustful gratification or desire to get something and in us, there's a sense that, that there's much more to it than just just wanting things or desiring things, because there's, there's, we we can have teachings like love thy enemies, and we we can we can elevate or contemplate this ability to accept and to to respond in a kind and skillful way to even the most wretched, miserable, horrible beings or miserable experiences. We've seen it in people like the Buddha, for example, Gautama the Buddha, in the stories and legends of his life, when attacked or blamed or abused by people in the society or through circumstances, could always respond in a, in a compassionate, way to the misfortunes, miseries of, uh, of other beings. So we recognize that, there, that, we, that the universe we live in is a mystery and that we're very much <coughs> feeling it and we're very much limited in what we can perceive and understand within this human form. So what the Buddha gave as a teaching was what he called a handful of leaves. He said, my teaching is, is merely like a handful of leaves. 
It's only this much. It's not, it's not a lot. Because with this hand, if you have a handful of leaves, you can, you can, uh, you can deal, you can, you can contemplate a handful of something, can't you? But all the leaves in the forest, you know, if you tried to count them, imagine what, how, how confusing it would be. Go down, we have this little eight-acre beech wood. A lot of trees there. You try to count each one of those before you leave. The mind boggles, doesn't it? And a forest full of, and that's not a very big forest, it's a little beech grove. So, but notice in our human state, ability to comprehend and perceive is limited. We can't see from the top of the universal system, from the macrocosmic view, uh, and know everything about everything. It's beyond our ability within this form. But we can, we can contemplate a handful of something. It's not, too, it's not asking too much of any of us. We have five fingers, don't we, on each hand. So we, we can easily get a perspective on five. Five trillion is beyond our, is too much, isn't it? Or even... 500. You tried to figure out, memorize 500 qualities, 500 noble truths. It'd be, most of us would give up. There might be a a couple of geniuses here that might really find that uh, uh, quite wonderful, able to contemplate 500 noble truths. But four noble truths, we can deal with four is, a, is an easy number. We can hold up four fingers, 500 fingers, you lose track too easily, too many, too much for the human mind. So what I'm pointing to is just the limitation we're under as the, in our human form. But the thing, that, but the, the, uh, the Buddhist teaching is to teaching for complete enlightenment it's not a, just a kind of half uh, or or you know just a just a, a kind of partial enlightenment for complete enlightenment complete perfect understanding of the truth but we have to learn from the from this handful from the from the little things of our lives from the ordinariness of our lives from from the way we are, from the way life is, within our own experience of it, each one of us. If we learn from this, we can't, because we can't learn about everybody on the planet, or even, we can't really know very much about even one other person. We can't, we can't, uh, even if we live with them all the time, we can't really know them all that well. But we can know ourselves because we, we know, we, we, we're aware of what we're feeling now. What you're feeling now, I'm not so aware of. I might assume the way, the way you look or, uh, you know, I might project on you. Maybe I might get it all wrong because, you know, you might be 
feeling full of bliss and happiness but looking quite <laughs> miserable. Some people are that way. Some, some people look, look really uh, sour-faced and, and unhappy. And when you, when you talk, you find out they're quite happy and content. Can't always tell by the expression. But we can know where we are all the time, because this is this is within our ability. Because as I pointed out previously, we are practically speaking, each one of us is the center of the universe. Because every for your whole life, you just whatever hits you, touches you, impresses on you, passes in front of your eyes, whatever sounds happen to be around, or odors, or tastes, or heat and cold, pleasure and pain on the body, you're going to feel it. Feeling is like this, it's pleasurable, painful, and neutral. That we can, we can manage, we can develop all different gradations of uh, feelings between uh, the ultimate pleasure and the ultimate pain. We could try to arrange a kind of discriminative perceptual range of, uh, of grades of uh, feeling from the ultimate pleasure into, to less than ultimate and on, 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 on down to, to kind of try to refine it into perceptual bit. But practically speaking, for, for insight into Dhamma, we're, we don't need to, to do that because we'll just take feeling or the experience of sensitivity in terms of pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain, or neutral feeling. And that, that is not beyond our ability, isn't it? We can, we can manage to, to observe what, is, what pleasure is like when we're feeling pleasure, Comfort, ease, happiness, being praised. What is it? Most of us we like to be praised. People say we're we're, we're uh, lovable, uh, attractive beings, or we like that, or we, we can feel what it's like when somebody uh, criticizes us or blames us for something. Or we can also observe just what it's like when nothing much is happening. Nobody is praising or blaming, or when nothing particularly beautiful or ugly or pleasant or painful is impinging on us, it's, it's just this way. Most of our life, most of our experience is neutral, isn't it? It's neither pre- extremely pleasurable nor extremely painful. Most of conscious experience, majority of it in a lifetime, is not one extreme or the other, it's just this way. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing. It's, it's me having to get up in the morning, put on your clothes, eat something, and so forth. The daily routine of, that every human being has is neither particularly, you know, fantastically wonderful, interesting, or uh, any extreme pleasure or extreme pain. It's just ordinary stuff. 
the way it is. And if we don't acknowledge this and see this, then we tend to spend our lives trying to seek kind of stimulating, you know, the not noticing that most of our life is goes unnoticed, is not really fully conscious, because we're always aiming to for the extremities, trying to get away from any painful, unpleasant possibilities, to seeking the most exciting, interesting, fascinating, pleasurable, beautiful experiences. Remember when I in the I became a monk in nineteen sixty six and that was at the time the a lot of uh, Europeans, Americans were heading off to India and and Asia and they were taking all kinds of drugs uh, and and some of them uh, by 1970 or so were, were drifting into Thailand and and, uh, were, and and started coming to our monastery in, in Uborn in northeast Thailand and they'd tell me about the, the extreme the extremities they would go to to have exciting pleasurable experiences with drugs. And they, they, they talk about taking all kinds of drugs at the same time, plus drink and both the and kind of amphetamine drugs and hallucinogenic drugs and plus they injecting themselves, swallowing pills, smoking and inhaling and sniffing and whatnot. Taking, trying to take sense pleasure or exciting the senses to to where it's just totally, totally exciting, because it was allowed back in the sixties, wasn't it? It was even, it probably still is today. But but in the sixties, it was new. The idea of kind of totally blasting your senses with, with what could be the most exciting possibilities of play of pleasure, and excitement that that a human being could ever conceive of or hope for. But the thing was that, that uh, even though you could do that and maybe reach this, this peak of total kind of pleasure, absorption into pleasure, it doesn't last very long. And, uh, and then you have to deal with the ordinariness of life, which if you get, if you get addicted to this extreme pleasure sense pleasure or emotional pleasure, then then the ordinariness of life is just depressing. One, one sinks into a, a, a sense of depression and despair, horrendous kind of hellish, depressing moods take over the mind as a, as a result of this addiction to pleasure, extreme pleasure. So in meditation, notice we're establishing our mindfulness not around seeking extreme pleasure or pain. It's not indulging, trying to have the most wonderful uh, sense experiences. Or it's not uh, asceticism, where we're sitting here trying to torture ourselves, make ourselves suffer. But it's in uh, awakening, recognizing, noting the way things are, which is neither one nor the other. So like the breathing. That anapanasati is neither 
pleasurable nor painful. It's neutral for most of us. I don't, we don't usually notice our breath unless it's painful. Unless we have trouble breathing or something, then we notice. But when, when one is not having any problems with breathing, we don't notice it. It's just the body breathes and we, we, can, we, we, we wouldn't even notice it or, or, or contemplate it in any way unless we come to a meditation retreat or somebody suggests it. And yet something uh, of extreme pleasure would, would completely attract us, each one of us. If some very exciting thing uh, happened right now, or some very pleasurable or beautiful uh, experience uh, came to us at this moment, we'd all absorb right into it very quickly. It would, we, would, we wouldn't have to kind of force ourselves to pay attention to it, would we? We'd, we'd just automatically kind of go to it and, and, and um, re- react to it. Or something terrible, some very painful or horrible thing. But the ordinariness, which is neither pleasure nor pain, we pay, we're using that as an object to reflect upon, to notice, because that's what most of our life is, is in that realm of neither pleasure nor pain. And so much of our life is never really consciously accepted or noticed. They say the ignorant human being is always looking for something that they don't have, trying to get away from from sickness or pain or unpleasantness that they have now and hoping in the future to, to get some kind of place, to get some place where you, or some situation, or looking forward to the next interesting, fascinating, exciting possibility. Now I'm just reflecting like this for you, so you can, because what what say what we're doing is in conscious this conscious state that we're in, with the teachings of the Buddha, we're we're informing our consciousness with these with these wisdom teachings. We're not trying to memorize wise sayings. It's not that. We're not trying to memorize Buddha's wise sagely sayings, but we're taking the teachings of the Buddha as skillful means to begin to look and investigate our own conscious experience of pleasure and pain and neither pleasure nor pain, happiness and suffering. And with this also to get beyond the conditioned assumptions we have about it. Because every one of you will interpret your pleasure and pain on a as a a personal experience. My pleasure, my pain. My feelings. My body, my consciousness. What I think, what I feel. These are the the common uh, ways of speaking, of expression. This is the, whatever language you, 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 whatever your native language is, they all uh, make that assumption. I am this body, I'm this person my things, my feelings, my thoughts, my views. 
So this sense of me and mine uh, is a conditioning that we get through through our cultural conditioning, education, just the the ethnic uh, assumptions that we all that we acquire through being born into the particular families and and situations. And all this is, is conditioned in. We acquire this after birth. We we form a sense of ourself as a personality as we as as we grow up when we're children, isn't it? We 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 uh, we have we uh, children at first don't have a strong ego. They're still discovering, still more working on the intuitive level of feeling life and, and, and experiencing life as a new thing. And then as we grow older we become very, we form strong views about ourselves, whether we're attractive or unattractive, lovable or not, or strong views about what boys should be, what girls should be, what uh, you know, our relationship with mother, with father, with brothers and sisters and so forth are all uh, for, we form a sense of ourself as a personality as a separate person now with Dhamma teachings we're, we're getting we're, we're, we're putting this conditioning into perspective of, of Dhamma we're taking we're, we're not trying to deny or convince ourselves that we don't have a self. We're not here to kind of convince, convince our, you know, take the uh, I, I don't have any self, or I shouldn't have an ego, or I shouldn't have any desires, or the kind of ideas that often people form around Buddhist teachings are. It's not. It's not the. That's not what the teachings are about. In order, they're not there to, to kind of grasp those teachings. To, to form views that we shouldn't have a personality or we shouldn't feel anything or we shouldn't have desires. But the teachings are like tools to help you, like a mirror or something, a convention that you can, if you, if you properly, will help you to see the way things are in which you, you, you're liberating your mind from the assumptions you make, from the prejudices you have, from the conditioning of your mind. And that all that can be put in a perspective of Dhamma, whatever it is, good or bad conditioning, or right or wrong, or whatever, it's, it's not the issue about the, the quality of the conditioning, but to be able to put it in its proper perspective through wisdom and this this uh, profound uh, knowledge that comes through through this kind of reflecti- reflections on Dhamma. So we say we can be conscious, since we're all conscious anyway, we can be ignorant and conscious we can be insane. We can be crazy and conscious. Crazy people are still conscious. 
totally deluded and conscious. Every got it all wrong and conscious. Or they now we are taking wisdom and using consciousness, our experience of consciousness and feeling within the context of wisdom. And this is what Buddha's teachings are about. You're, you're taking the, those teachings not to con- condition your mind, but to open your, to allow your conscious experience to be informed with, with, uh, through revelation of wisdom, through wisdom. So when you're mindful, when you're when you, when you when your mind is not caught or stuck or hanging on to anything, and and then there's consciousness, then the feelings that you're you're experiencing, you begin to objectify rather than just be caught in the reactions to pleasure and pain. You begin to be able to see your own desires and fears going through uh, your consciousness. You can observe through, through, your, this, this, through this reflectiveness of the mind that maybe you're, you're frightened or you're angry or, or you're jealous or you're confused or you feel threatened or you feel bored or whatever. You, these, these kind of emotions you, you begin to notice as things that come and go in your mind, through consciousness. You're looking at them in terms of Dhamma. So Dhamma is uh, all conditions are impermanent. So whatever you're feeling, happy, sad, high, low, elated, depressed, frightened, uncertain, insecure, lost and lonely, unloved, unwanted, rejected, or feeling you're the best, you're, you're better than everyone else, or uh, whatever, you know, positive or negative feelings, emotions, perceptions you have, you're now looking at them in the characteristic of impermanence, which helps you to, to put them in an, as objects rather than absorbing, believing, uh, following, reacting to these feelings, these emotions. When we allow pleasure and pain and neither pleasure nor pain into conscious, when we when it and we're not just we're not reacting but we're we're allowing our conscious experience to be whatever is happening, whatever is impinging, we're, we're accepting it, we're noticing it, we're reflecting upon it, then we, we begin to, to see that we're not any of these things. We're not the body, this is not the self, this is not really what I am, this body. We begin, begin to realize that pleasure and pain uh, uh, feelings and emotions are really not self because it becomes quite obvious they're objects and you say like this clock is not me how do I know it? because because I can see it as an object this body then 
I assume, you know, uh, the con- cultural conditioning, I assume I'm this body. This is my body, this is me, I look like this. But then uh, on reflection, just like I begin to notice, I can reflect on the body. There's, there's something that can observe the body. Reflect on it. Notice how it feels, whether it's hot or cold. Whether there's, there's pain in it or pleasure or n- neutral feeling. And it's not the body that can do that, is it? This hand can't observe this hand. The right hand can't observe the left hand. There's something else observing. (laughs) That's like reflected with the reflective mind. With the senses... The eyes can't see each other, can they? Or can't see themselves. So you can't, you can't look, you know, can't, you can't see your own eyes. I can see your eyes, but you can't see your own eyes. Can you? So, even though that's an obvious truth, that's oftentimes never fully recognized, that there's the, that which sees, which is conscious, which is knowing, which is sensitive, beyond the, just the sensitiveness and the, the sense organs themselves, there's a, 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 a knowledge, a, a wisdom, an intuit, maybe it's more of an intuitive wisdom in uh, uh, that is when we begin to abide in that intuitive wisdom more and more, then that is the enlightened mind, the mind that is not deluded by the appearances, by the con- conditioning of the mind. It sees the conditioning of the mind, the body, in terms of Dhamma, the way it is, rather than with the biases, prejudices, preferences that that we're condition to have and, and 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 bound to through identification through habit so see this retreat here as a chance to kind of open and say as you calm down more and more your your ability to reflect and observe it will will increase you're not just you're not just they caught up in the maybe the restlessness of your body or the or the obsessiveness of the mind. You can begin to look at it maybe a little more objectively. Just distance yourself from it, accept it. During this retreat, accept how you're feeling. It doesn't matter whether you feel happy or get tranquil or, or whatever. This is, if that happens, fine. If it doesn't, fine. It's not the point. But to try to say, inform yourself a little more about the way things are. Begin to notice, note, observe, witness, and 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 observe especially the the tendency towards compulsiveness. <coughs> this this urgent, the sense of urgency, having to do things. That is that is one of the most powerful emotional habits we have. 
the kind of driven obsessive compulsiveness of that, that modern human beings experience or the fear the, the, the fears anxieties that that sometimes we just have automatically a kind of rejected uh, 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 not allowing that into consciousness it's interesting in meditation things as you relax more then certain things will come up into consciousness maybe repressed feelings uh, that you've never that maybe your life your more active life you you can you can keep uh, away from you you can you can you can reject you have what they call defense mechanisms or ways of, of filtering things so that you're you're only conscious on certain around certain things and there's a whole other side that it goes unnoticed and in meditation this will this other side will start coming into consciousness with many people no that's a good sign don't don't be frightened by <laughs> because it means that that you're now you're you're in a safe place aren't you you're the three refuges you have the three refuges buddha dhamma sangha the eight precepts in a very safe place and now you you you, you don't have to uh, you don't have to defend yourself or prove anything you're not here to prove that you can meditate or you're not here to to get anything or get rid of anything This is a, just a very unique opportunity to just be here, to to calm down and observe, get to know yourself better, to begin to reflect on the way things are in terms of Dhamma rather than ideas of how you would like life to be or how you would like to be as a person. With all the attempts, you know, like for example, in this past few years, we've we've been able to see one of the great experiments of a communist Soviet communism collapse. And then it's interesting to to think of that the kind of minds that would produce uh, such an idealistic, such an idealism of of say communism, which is which is a very high-minded ideal mm. as a form of government that where everyone's equal uh, and everything is shared I mean that's very high-minded, very idealistic the communism in its most kind of idealistic form everyone is equal there's no class system, no rich, no poor Everything is fairly distributed, shared amongst everyone. Is is maybe how life should be as an ideal? Wouldn't it be nice if everything were fair and just and equal and and perfect in that way? That's an ideal, isn't it? That's 
We can, we can conceive an ideal like that. But then, what happened to that ideal? What happened to it? It became a tyranny, didn't it? The whole system, instead of, instead of, instead of being able to, to make life into this, this kind of utopian state, of total justice, fairness, equality became a kind of horrendous tyranny and oppression to millions and millions of people and then collapsed. So we can see that sometimes we do that in, in our own minds, don't we? We have this, we, we form ideas, uh, ideals of what we should be and then we oppress our minds with this ideal that you, you have formed an idea of what a perfect human being, a good man or woman should be. And then you take that ideal and then you, you kind of oppress your emotions with it. You're always, you're always, you're never going to be the ideal. You're always, there, you're only going to fail. You're, you can't be an ideal, can you? you it's impossible for you to be a perfect man or woman as an ideal. Because life is like this, isn't it? It's a dynamic, flowing experience. An idea is fixed. doesn't change. The superlative ideal of communism is, is fixed. It's like the idea is the same as it was back in 1900. And even though the system's collapsed, the ideal is the same but the actual experience of, that comes from that ideal wasn't used, well, there was no wisdom in it, wasn't it? Wasn't, wisdom wasn't the means towards moving towards that ideal, it was taking something and kind of shoving it on you, forcing you to obey, to conform, to go along with it. And of course then the means, you, how can you get such a, 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 a any any good result if you're using tyrannical means doesn't work, can you? But you know, no matter how much I want you to be free and happy, if I force my views on you, you're going to feel oppressed by me. I might have very good ideas about how you should live your life. I might be right too, completely right what I want you to do and how I want you to be and how I want you to live your life might be very good for you. But if I shove them down your throat, what are you going to be feeling? You're going to be feeling oppressed. Uh, no matter how, how good my ideas are, the, act, the, the way it's presented, isn't it? The imposition, the, the force, uh, your feeling, because this is your nature, is a feeling, your feeling being, it's like this, you feel it. So even the best things, say if we, the best conditions or the highest standards or the greatest ideas, say if not understood with wisdom, can be the very cause, the very, that by clinging to these ideas, we create enormous amounts of anguish and despair in our lives. 
we oppress our minds. We're, we're tyrants, internal tyrants. The internal tyrant will, will, will nag away, will accuse and, and abuse you. You abuse yourself. So in reflecting on Dhamma now, we're, 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 we're noticing that we have this ability to create ideas, which is a great gift, nothing to despise and nothing wrong with it. But to be able to see that in its proper context is wisdom. To know how to use ideas and ideals, how to, how to accept emotions, and to, how to trust and have faith and to not be frightened by the sensitive state you're in is what you're learning, what you learn, what you'll open to through meditation. So you will begin to appreciate and not be frightened by this state of vulnerability and sensitivity that we find ourselves as we begin to see it now instead of a kind of freak accident or a mystery that that overwhelms us or frightens us or threatens us we can begin to see it now as opportunity to understand to investigate to to use the the pleasures and pains the successes and failures of our human experience for our understanding of Dhamma. Because in terms of Dhamma, it doesn't matter how successful or how much of failure or happiness or misery or good health or bad health. These are not, these are not obstacles. These are not, uh, these are just, these are so dependent on various causes and conditions that there's no point in spending your life trying to control it all because you, we don't have very much control over it. But we can learn from it, whatever it is. Success or failure, happiness or suffering, good health, bad health, being praised or being blamed, whatever. So I offer this for your reflection for this evening.